0: Marriage seems to be in big trouble these days. Since 1970, the marriage rate in America has fallen by nearly 30%. In 1900, 2% of the adult population was single. Today, that figure is 40%. In her book, Unhooked Generation, The Truth About Why We're Still Single, Gillian Strauss claims that single adults are opting to find social and sexual gratification within groups of uncommitted single peers rather than in the confines of marriage. The trend is toward having fun, keeping one's options open, and avoiding the high call of commitment that is required in marriage. And while marriage rates plummet, divorce rates are skyrocketing. The National Center for Health Statistics claims that 43% of first marriages will end in divorce within 15 years. We go back a little ways, but back to 1880, the divorce rate was under 5%. Included in this assault is the homosexual agenda to reconstitute the very definition of marriage. And breathing the air of this cultural environment, it's vital that Christian churches think biblically about singleness, and we need to more and more as our culture develops. We should do so in anticipation, I think, first of all, of a growing population of singles within our own assembly. More importantly, we should do so because the glory of Jesus Christ is at stake in this issue. Jesus will be glorified. He will be exalted in our lives and in our church only insofar as the written Word of God guides our thinking and dictates our actions. So for the single adults in our assembly, for our children who will become single adults, and for all of us who love them, let us seek biblical light On this matter of singleness. What does God's Word say? In reading for this topic, in studying the Scriptures, I feel very insufficient as I stand before you here. This could be developed in so many ways along so many lines, but I brought this topic under the light of Scripture and trace it down just several lines of thought. And let me start with this proposition that I think, first of all, singles should actively pursue marriage. Singles should actively pursue marriage. Marriage is God's good gift to mankind. It is good for single adults to pursue it. We hardly need to go there after the last few weeks on our topic of the family, but let's return to our moorings. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Genesis 1 and verse 26. There needs to be a systematic defense of marriage within this culture, and so we just highlight a few verses of Scripture to do so. But first of all, in chapter 1 and verse 26, we read the words of God. God said, "'Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground.'" So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And of course, God announces His great benediction at the end of this sixth day, seeing that everything was very good. We come to chapter 2 in a recounting of this sixth day, a more careful recounting. We read in verse 18 of chapter 2 that the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then in verse 21 of chapter 2, The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, here is Moses' conclusion, I believe, the inspired words. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. God united one man and one woman in a one flesh relationship for life. God fitted Adam and Eve with sexual capacities by which they were to celebrate their oneness and by which they were to propagate the race. And this relationship of one man and one woman united in marriage is, in God's design, the primary building block of human society. Marriage is God's idea from start to finish, and it is a good gift. As the story of redemption unfolds, marriage plays a pivotal role in God's plan to save the lost. We're looking here in chapters 1 and 2 at a time when there is no sin. But even as sin enters into the picture in chapter 3, we see that God's plan of redemption will follow along the lines of marriage. In the story of redemption unfolding, marriage will play a pivotal role in God's plan to save the lost. Following Adam and Eve's rebellion, God curses the serpent, but feathers into that curse a word of hope for mankind. You remember it well. Chapter 3 and verse 15. Genesis 3 and verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. Adam has already named his wife woman in verse 23 of chapter 2. But after hearing God's promise that one of her offspring will crush Satan's head, Adam responds by giving Eve a second name, verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. So in 223, Adam named his wife Ishah to reflect her connection to him, Ish. Here Adam names his wife Eve to stress what relationship, her relationship to her offspring. By naming her again, Adam seems to express his hope in God's promise that there would be a representative from her offspring that would crush Satan's head. And as that hope builds through Scripture, it tracks down family lines. The promise to Abraham, consider it, the promise to Abraham comes as an offspring, The promise of an offspring, there will be children who will come, who will be born to you and to your wife, and through these children will come the promised Messiah. We think of the story of the birth of Isaac and its significance in Scripture, and then the lengthy account of Isaac's marriage to Rebekah. Tremendous amount of ink is spilled in that chapter describing how Isaac is married, and how through this marriage will come this one this prophesied Messiah. We have the birth then of Jacob and the birth of Judah and eventually the birth of David leading to the birth of Messiah. All of this tracking down family lines. We see the importance of marriage in God's plan. We see it as well in other ways. We can add to this the high esteem that is placed on marriage in Scripture as witness in the song of solomon in which god blesses the erotic joys of a husband and wife devoted to one another in the bond of marriage god sings when men and women within marriage relate to each other in a sexual way song of solomon and i'd like to point us to 1 timothy 4 verses 1 through 5 1 timothy 4 verses 1 through 5 which provides a sort of backdoor support of the fundamental goodness of marriage. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, the Spirit clearly says in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. 1 Timothy four, two. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. As evidence of this searing of the conscience, he lists, verse 3, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. 1 Timothy 4, 1-5 alerts us to the fact that a telltale sign of demonic deception in the last days are false teachers who forbid people to marry. Verse 3. Abstention from marriage is coupled quite naturally here to abstention from food. This indicates that marriage, like food, is a fundamental gift from God to the human race. Those who forbid marriage are deceived. They are false teachers. They are to be shunned, says Paul to Timothy. So in light of this, we must not be influenced by the pervasive cultural skepticism and even cynicism with which marriage is viewed in our day. To be more pointed, it means that our young men need to be trained to grow up and to assume the responsibility of marriage. This is a word, in the Christian church in America that did not need to be sounded very long ago. But it's a word that needs to be sounded today. We need young men to grow up and to assume the responsibility of marriage. I would say to teen boys in particular here, you need to commit yourself to pursue marriage as soon as it is time to pursue marriage as soon as it is time. Now, that time is going to differ for each one of you. There will be different issues of life that you are facing and different plans that you have, of course. It will be different for each one. But do not look at marriage as something to avoid until you can't avoid it any longer, as something to put off unto the bitter end of possibility. See marriage as a good gift from God and prepare yourself to pursue this gift. It's been a long time since my wedding day, I'll have to say, but if I recall, should ask my wife first, but I think somebody gave me this little band, I remember, at least I've seen them, and I think I had one, a little band around my arm that had a ball and chain on it. That's a good joke and good humor, I suppose. But there are many who aren't taking that as a joke in our day. They're seeing what God has given as a good and gracious gift as a means of stifling your freedom, and dragging you down, and restricting you, and cutting out your options. That's bad thinking. And for our young boys, I say to you in particular, you need to be careful not to think that way. Marriage is not to be put off at all costs. Marriage is something to be pursued. It is God's good gift for His people. And let me get a little more sticky here, and I know I'll have even parents who disagree with me on this. It's an open discussion. I don't speak the Word of God here. But I would encourage you not to develop emotional intimacy with any young woman until you are ready to pursue marriage. You may find any number of girls attractive. In fact, I think the Bible would indicate that you should talk to girls, befriend girls, interact with them in a healthy way but do not get so close to a young woman that she becomes emotionally attached to you before either of you are ready for marriage. If you encourage a romantic relationship with a girlfriend whom you have no intention to marry for years to come, then you are probably using that girl for your own selfish pleasures, and you're hurting her. Men generally have a capacity to maintain an emotional distance that women do not have. And because of the broken structure of putting people together for marriage in our culture, there are many young men who are hurting women constantly and unnecessarily. Now I know men get hurt too once in a while, but we can just kind of say, buck up and soldier on a little bit with men. For women it's different and it ought to be different. We are called by God to be protective and to be respectful and to honor women as women. So I would encourage you, young boys, as you grow to that place, to give any young female friend the respect to keep a proper distance unless you are honestly willing to consider marriage with her. If you're flirting with or dating a girl that you know you will never marry, stop it. You're hurting her. You're playing around with somebody else's wife for your own selfish purposes. And if you're dating a girl you know you can't marry for years to come, well, here I get into trouble with parents. Listen to your parents. But realize that you are probably dating a woman who will become another man's wife. Statistically speaking, you've got a very little chance of actually marrying her because you're too far away from marriage. Do not get emotionally attached and respect her body because it's not yours. To the singles who are more mature and are at the age of marriage, I would encourage you along these lines, grow increasingly marriageable. That should be your project, to grow increasingly marriageable. Do not be so consumed with work and school that you could not enter a relationship if one came along and knocked you over. Do not be so consumed with self that you ignore unattractive weaknesses in who you are. Stay out of debt. Get out if you're in it. Give attention to how you look. As a single adult, you need to care for your body. You need to dress and groom not how you feel, it should be done, but dress and groom so as to appear attractive to a godly man or woman should God bring one along your path. These are just some practical concepts, even physical concepts, but I would say above all, develop character. Grow in likeness, become more and more a person of beauty, and let God take care of the rest. So I say, first of all, and we're not done, But I say first of all, pursue marriage. Singles should pursue marriage. That is the general baseline approach. It is a good gift from God. It should be pursued actively. But secondly, some singles should not pursue marriage. There is an exception to this general rule. First Corinthians chapter seven addresses this issue as nowhere else in scripture and i do not provide by any means a full exposition of this entire chapter which would be ideal but i'd like to highlight just a few conclusions a few statements that paul makes concerning singleness concerning more accurately celibacy some singles should not pursue marriage this is true and we should consider this along biblical lines first corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1 1 Corinthians 7.1, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. The Greek, not to touch a woman. It uh, refers to sexual intercourse and thus by extension to marriage. But, verse 2, Since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And remember the context of Corinth. There was a tremendous amount of immorality. And by immorality, let's understand, we won't need to say it anywhere else, but the biblical vision is for a man and a woman to reserve sexual activity until they are married. That is for life to be devoted in sexual activity with one mate. This is God's call. But the norm here is, verse 2, that because of immorality, because of the inability to remain pure, marriage is a legitimate and proper option. Now, Paul is not ignorant of Genesis 1 and 2. He's speaking here within a certain context. But he, as he, he discusses here the appropriate relationship then between a husband and a wife in verses 3 through 6, we'll skim over that, but coming to verse 6, He says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. That is, you're not obligated to be married. But, verse 7, I wish that all men were as I am. But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift and another that. Paul rejoices here in the fact that God has given him a charisma. That is, the Greek idea of a unique spiritual gift to remain celibate. And I wish everybody was like this, says Paul. Now, Paul was one intense guy, wasn't he? And he really had a lot to accomplish in the work of God. And he says, I wish that everybody lived the life that I live, of complete devotion to the work of God, and not to be drawn away by the demands of a family. So even in light of the Bible's high commendation of marriage, celibacy is a noble choice, says Paul. I want you to understand that. But it comes with a gift. That is, celibacy demands a gift, verse 7. Now, going on, he says in verse 8, Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To burn, literally here, and that, of course, speaks of sexual desire. If an individual burns with sexual desire, if an individual struggles to control sexual passion, and that struggle hinders his or her walk with God, that person is free and right to pursue marriage. If it's holding you back, marriage is a good thing. But God does uniquely empower some people, like the Apostle Paul, to control their sexual passions in such a way that they can serve God better if they're not married. Now the idea with such people is not that they have no interest in sexuality. The idea with such people is that they can keep it under control and actually serve God better. I think most people pretty much know who they are. To not have sexual release is constantly causing spiritual trouble, or to not have sexual release is something that I can keep under control and I can give to God in order to serve Him better. Who are you? There are some that God has fitted to be able to say no to sexual passion in order to serve God better. Let's jump ahead to verse 25. In this chapter, 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 25, now he says about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. But simply what he's saying, there are some things Jesus has directly spoken on here, and I'm quoting him. There's other things, though, that are under inspiration, as Paul writes them down. But he's saying this is an idea I didn't get directly from Christ. Because, verse 26, because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. You're unmarried? Remain that way. Verse 27, are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned, but those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Paul's instructions are motivated by what he refers to here as the present crisis, verse 26, in which God's people will, quote, face many troubles, verse 28. The Corinthian church was facing an external crisis of some sort that rendered marriage uniquely difficult. And it is important that we consider this context. Paul is not saying marriage is a bad thing. Try to avoid it if you can He is not saying that celibacy earns God's favor more than does marriage. Paul is simply saying that if God so enables, a person may serve God more effectively by remaining single and avoid, in all of that, unnecessary trouble. In the present circumstances, then, this is Paul's counsel. Now remember, 1 Timothy, do you remember that? 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 14, Paul encourages widows, young widows, in a different context to marry. So to one church, Paul can say, I think it's best that you not marry. And to another church, he can say in a different context, it is best for you to marry. Verse 29. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who... Mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, and those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away." The present crisis, says Paul, is temporary, but it's very intense calling for radical living in the interest of God's will. We don't know all the circumstances and the details here, but there is a call to radical living for God's will. Verse 32, I would like you to be free from concern. That's why he gives this command. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are then divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So Paul wants to put a burden on no one. And I think to read this passage and to say it's really better that someone not get married than that they get married is really to misread the passage and to not take into account all that the Scripture teaches. Paul wants to put no burden on anyone. He just wants them to consider the liberty they may be privileged to enjoy by foregoing the normal path of marriage. This is put in Contemporary terms very nicely in the book, Rediscovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, edited by Piper and Grudem, where Trevor Douglas is quoted by Piper as saying this. He's a missionary in the Philippines, a single man, and he says, The first advantage of being single is that it's best adapted to perilous situations. In rugged life among primitive tribes in guerrilla-infested areas or in disease and famine, the single man has only himself to worry about. One of my chief delights is that I don't have to fit my ministry around a family schedule. I don't have to be home at a certain time each night. My time is the Filipino's time. said very well. It gives a very live example of a man who sees what Paul is saying. In the middle of this particular crisis, it is good for this man to be single. He sees this, he knows this, and he pursues his ministry in light of this truth. Now let's bring it to bear on our setting, in our time. I guarantee you, Paul would be horrified to see a young man pursue an unrestrained life nurturing flirtatious relationships with any number of women and claiming that 1 Corinthians 7 is his justification. That is not what Paul is saying. This passage does not commend singleness as such. It commends celibacy. It commends celibacy for the express purpose of serving God with greater freedom and devotion. Having said that then, There is an application here, I think, to single adults who would love to be married, but who are not. This is an application we draw from a different context, a different line of thought. But I would say, thirdly, that singles should seize the unique opportunity of their singleness to serve Jesus Christ with zeal. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 35 Paul is driving at undivided devotion to the Lord. So we may miss on that second point and say, I don't believe God is calling me to celibacy. I would really love to be married, but I don't have that opportunity. There is no one that has asked to marry me. I, perhaps you're in a situation where you should not be married, but you would, you would love to be married. You don't you really think in many respects that it's the best thing for you to be single for life but there's just no option at this place. I think we draw from this passage then this principle. Singles, you have a unique opportunity to live a life of undivided devotion to Jesus Christ. You may hope for that day to end in one respect. You may hope for God to bring you a mate in his time, but in this time, pursue marriage Work on being marriageable, but set your attention on the service of Jesus Christ. Pour out your life, not in selfish pursuits, but in the service of the body of Christ and in witness to a lost world. You have a unique window of opportunity to do this with undivided devotion. Do it. Service to Christ will require... And at the same time, it will keep you from self-pity, and self-absorption, and withdrawal. And I think one of the greatest joys and comforts to a single adult who would love to be married is the realization that you are following the path that Jesus Christ walked. He was never married. Jesus never had sex although he was tempted in every place like we are. And as you follow the call to purity, to remain sexually pure for the mate that God may someday provide, or may not, you can know that you are not an inferior member of Christ's body, but are in fact following the example of the head of the church. Depending on how you cut the chronology, whether Jesus was 30 or 33, he was way past marriageable age in his culture. Most young men were married at age 17 in Jesus' day. Jesus chose not to marry. Don't get any goofy idea that he was somehow uniquely divine and therefore didn't have any such urges. He did. If he was tempted in all places like as we are, would he not then be tempted in the place where we are most tempted, many of us? He demonstrated to us the ability to keep under wraps the urges that God creates within us as human beings. Indeed, singles who would desire to be married, married, you are sharing the experience of Jesus Christ. You are sharing that experience in a way that married couples will never fully understand. And for some of you, let's say it straight up, for some of you it is a call to suffer. I think as you handle that suffering, That it is important that you refuse to view your singleness as a disaster. That you refuse to view your singleness as bad luck, or to view your state as second-class inferiority. See your singleness as a God-given opportunity to experience the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. For the greater cause, for the call of God, Jesus set marriage aside to better serve the purposes of His Father. If God has called you to that goal for now, for this time, then serve Him with joy and walk with Jesus Christ. In this service to Jesus, then, I would encourage you, see your church as your family. See your church as your family. In God's grace, many who are single are able to maintain ties with their physical family, and that is good, and that is right. But I think it is also important and part of the biblical strategy for you to see your church as your spiritual family and to relate there effectively and actively. The Apostle Paul encouraged young Timothy to treat the older men and women in the Ephesian assembly as fathers and mothers, and to treat the younger men and women as brothers and sisters. Singles, you don't have a family to worry about. But remember, this church is your family. And I would encourage you then to seek out children within our assembly to encourage talk with them, to build them up, to strengthen them in the faith, to be discerning about how you may help families in this assembly, to seek accountability from others that are here, to live a righteous life. There's not somebody at home checking up on you. Make sure that there's someone in your life who can and does, and seek out those points of accountability within this assembly, Participate in church activities. Don't run away from them. Join in. Be part. We need the force of your energies, and we need the benefit of your undivided devotion. Let's think of it clearly in light of God's counsel. He says that if you find yourself by God's design in a place of singleness, whether chosen or not, you have the ability of undivided devotion to the cause of Jesus Christ. Singleness is not a call to undivided devotion to yourself and to your own agenda. It's an opportunity to pour your life out in service to others. I believe it is the reason that Jesus chose not to be married, perhaps. It's conjecture. It certainly seems to be probable. I believe it certainly is the reason why Paul chose that same line, that he may serve the purposes of God more effectively. If you long to be committed to a wife or a husband, pour out your devotion in service to God's people as you wait. Replace the emptiness and loneliness that can come with singleness. Replace it with service to the body of Jesus Christ. And may we as a church, and those of us particularly who are married, respond in the right way to those who are single among us. There are those perhaps that God has called to remain single for life. that He's given this unique opportunity to them and we as a church should respect that and encourage that and support such individuals. We don't need to try to get them married off. We don't need to try to play matchmaker. If this is God's leading in their life, we need to respect that, appreciate it, and encourage them in it. But there are others, and perhaps the far greater number, of singles who would love to be married, who would desire to pursue marriage, and would desire that someone would pursue them. We need to respect that situation. First of all, for what it provides to our assembly. And secondly, for the element of suffering that often is going on there. No single, I don't think, is asking for our self-pity. And if any does, they need to be corrected and they need to change. But what they are asking for is our support and our understanding and our appreciation of who they are. God has placed them for reasons only He knows in a position where they can be uniquely devoted to His cause and to accomplish more than what could be accomplished by many couples. Now, singles, there is a call for you to really step up and get that done. That, can only, that may only be theory. It's important that you step forward, but I think as you do, And even as we encourage singles there, married couples and the rest of our assembly, we need to realize this position that our singles have and to encourage them in it and support them. So I think as we bring this biblical light to bear on this topic, the pursuit of marriage should be the norm. It is a good thing. And those that hold out as if they're somehow gaining some great advantage should think differently. It's a good thing, it's to be pursued by those who are ready to be married. For a few, God may lead you to choose service to Him over service to family. May God bless you in that and give you a distinct and accurate understanding of that call. But for those who wait I encourage you pour out your undivided devotion to Christ in serving him and may each of us as a church respect and appreciate that it is a call to patience certainly and as we bring this series to close as we've talked about husbands and wives and parents and children we have been reminded haven't we over these last weeks of the difficulty of these relationships They are the gracious gift of God, and yet they prove very troublesome, very difficult sometimes to maintain. There are issues that arise before us that we cannot understand. But God, through these relationships, develops us and nurtures us. And it is no different with singles. There are some problems singles that you don't face with a mate some trials that you don't understand anything about because you don't know what it is to make a life work with another human being. There is suffering in marriage for every married couple, but you do have a suffering of a different sort. Children suffer with ungodly parents and even godly parents who make mistakes. And parents suffer with disobedient, Children who want to rebel. And husbands and wives suffer because of unloving responses and actions on either's part. And singles suffer wanting something very badly that God has not provided. We need to take hope in the reminder that all of these things are temporary. Marriage is temporary. Singleness is temporary. We will enter into the presence of God someday, those of us who know Him. We will enter into His presence and all of these trials and heartaches and difficulties will be gone. The call is to be patient in this short thing we call life. To press forward doing what God has called us to do. What has He called you to do? Do it to His glory and to His honor seeking to stand before him as a steward who is to be commended for being faithful to our Lord and Savior. May we press forward in that spirit, knowing that all of these trials are passing and that the glory of heaven will far surpass them all. That day is coming. May we prove faithful. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we so thank you. I want to bless you for the single adults in our assembly. And I want to thank You for the spirit and the attitude of biblical service that is at the heart of the philosophy that we have as an assembly. I thank You for each single who pours out their energies to serve You with gladness and joy. And I pray, Father, that You will bless them. Dear God, I ask, that you will comfort the hearts that are aching, and that you will bring mates to those who desire them as it would be your will. I pray, dear Father, that according to your blessing, according to your mercy, there would be many who would be able to enjoy the privilege of marriage. But for those who will not, for those who should not, I pray, dear God, that you'll lift them up and encourage them in the things of God and help them to serve You with joy and gladness of heart. May the purity and the holiness of Christ be all of our desires in the various circumstances in which You have placed us. And Lord, as we press forward now from this point after considering these matters over the last few weeks, we want to give You praise as the creator of marriage, as the creator of the Christian home, and as the great solace and motivator of every single adult. We give you praise and we give you thanks. Bind us together as an assembly, and may we pour out our efforts to bring glory and honor to your name. Wherever you've placed us, may we grow there, and may we follow through in our stewardship. There may be one among us, there may be several, who have not come to a place of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, dear God, that you would work in their lives to know what kind of a father we have. His instructions are certainly unusual when compared to the world, but his salvation is complete and whole. And I pray that you draw anyone who knows you not as Savior to a place of saving faith, according to your will and according to your leading and purposes. I pray, God, that you'll open up hearts and open up eyes. And may each one of us take carefully to account our responsibility to honor Your Word and to walk in light of it. Through Jesus I pray. Amen.